In this lesson, we are talking about Ogilvy syndrome. So we're going to talk about what this condition is, some of the risk factors for getting it. We're also going to talk about the clinical features of this condition, how it's diagnosed and how it's treated. So Ogilvy syndrome is also known as acute colonic pseudoobstruction. So as we see in this name, it involves the colon or the large intestine. So here is a diagram of the gastrointestinal system. So when we eat something, it goes down our esophagus into our stomach. The stomach joins with the small intestine, and the small intestine winds around within the abdomen, eventually connecting to the large intestine. And the large intestine has several segments, the cecum, which is in this area here, the ascending large intestine or the ascending colon, the transverse colon, and the descending colon and the sigmoid colon, eventually leading to the rectum and the anus. So Ogilvy syndrome is a functional rather than a mechanical obstruction of the large intestine. So that means that there's an issue with pushing things through it, not so much that there's an issue with something that's blocking the hollow tube. So there's no occlusion. It's more of an issue with the function of the large intestine. And what we see is that it involves dilatation of the colon. So the colon becomes very dilated. And there's particular parts of the colon that are more dilated. These include the cecum, as we mentioned before, in this area here, and the ascending colon. And then oftentimes, some of the transverse colon can be affected up until the splenic flexure. The pathophysiology of Ogilvy syndrome is unknown, but there are several risk factors. One of them is trauma in recent surgeries. So any kind of trauma can lead to Ogilvy syndrome or increase the risk of having Ogilvy syndrome. Certain surgeries in particular are more likely to lead to Ogilvy syndrome. These include certain orthopedic surgeries. Some infections are a risk factor for getting Ogilvy syndrome. Cardiac disorders, so having a heart attack or a myocardial infarction or having congestive heart failure increases your risk for having this condition. Disability, so not being mobile, not being able to move around is also another risk factor. Certain medications can increase the risk of Ogilvy syndrome and certain electrolyte abnormalities including hypokalemia, which is a low potassium level. So as we can see here, a lot of these risk factors are going to affect patients who are in hospital and patients who are older and are immobile. So a lot of times you're going to see an older patient who is hospitalized, who is immobile, they're going to be at an increased risk for having this syndrome. Now let's talk about the clinical features of Ogilvy syndrome. So First, it's important to note that the symptoms of Ogilvy syndrome occur over the course of three to five days. The most common symptom that occurs in Ogilvy syndrome is abdominal distension. So a bloating of the abdomen, where the abdomen becomes very enlarged. This usually occurs over a time period of roughly three to seven days. Again, this is the most common sign of Ogilvy syndrome, occurring in approximately 90% of patients. So there are some patients who don't have abdominal distension that can still have Ogilvy syndrome. But more often than not, we're going to see abdominal distension in Ogilvy syndrome. Abdominal pain is also another important and common clinical feature of Ogilvy syndrome, occurring in roughly three quarters of patients. Nausea and vomiting can also occur in Ogilvy syndrome. So it can look like an obstruction, so an obstructive process leading to a backup or 
a decreased transit through the gastrointestinal system. So it can lead to symptoms of nausea and vomiting as well, like other types of obstruction. Constipation is also another key finding with Ogilvy syndrome. Approximately 50% of patients will have constipation. So because the large intestine is not contracting and not being functional as it should, we can have issues with reduced bowel movements. Paradoxically, though, we can also see a secretory diarrhea occurring in some patients with Ogilvy syndrome. Usually 20 to 40% of patients may have secretory diarrhea. So they can have these other symptoms we talked about before, but they can also have diarrhea. So it can have a different clinical presentation than other intestinal obstructive disorders. So again, symptoms occur over the course of three to five days. This is average timing. It can occur earlier or it could be a little bit later, but oftentimes it's going to occur over three to five days involving abdominal distension, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, constipation, and secretory diarrhea in some patients. Now, how do clinicians diagnose and treat Ogilvy syndrome? So the diagnosis is a diagnosis of exclusion. So when clinicians see a lot of these symptoms, they're going to think that it could be another type of bowel obstruction, a small bowel obstruction or a large bowel obstruction. So you want to rule out those other causes of obstruction. X-ray imaging is also helpful with Ogilvy syndrome. When x-rays are performed, there are large amounts of colonic gas with distension. So a lot of gas in the large intestine with distension of the large intestine. And oftentimes, almost all colonic segments are going to be dilated. That is going to be a key finding with Ogilvy syndrome. And also, as we can see in this image here, this is very, very dilated large intestine. And we can actually even see the small intestine. So that is another finding that we can see with Ogilvy syndrome on x-ray. Other imaging modalities can be performed, oftentimes to rule out those other types of obstructive disorders, and colonoscopy can also be performed as well. When a clinician has diagnosed it, how do they treat Ogilvy syndrome? If it's stable, if it is a stable Ogilvy syndrome presentation, conservative management is often used. So treating the underlying cause, if it is an electrolyte imbalance, correct that imbalance, if there are medications that might be increasing the risk of Ogilvy syndrome, stop those medications. Oral feeds can often be stopped as well, and then the patient can be put on IV fluids. So that will give them time to allow the pseudo-obstruction to resolve. If they have nausea and vomiting, nasogastric tube can be placed. So a tube going through their nose into their stomach to allow the decompression of the stomach. So remove gastric contents, allowing them to have resolution of some of those nausea and vomiting symptoms. And then in some cases, colonic decompression may also be used. So a tube can be placed and then the colon can be decompressed that way. So oftentimes it's going to be a scenario where clinicians will conservatively manage this condition for a couple of days, treating the underlying cause if it is identified and then putting patients on IV fluids and NG tube if necessary. And a lot of times this will resolve on its own. But in some cases, if all other avenues have been explored, surgery may be required. So if you want to learn more about other gastroenterology disorders, please check out my playlist on those topics. And please like and subscribe for more lessons like this one. Thanks so much for watching, and I hope to see you next time.